Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. jump right in uh, because I've got some content uh, to cover here about the Pope, what the Pope said, what people are saying the Pope said, how people are interpreting it. And you might be saying to yourself, um, I'm not a Roman Catholic, so why should I care? Uh, the, The Roman Catholic Church remains the largest church in the world. And the Pope is a significant figure, not only Uh, for Roman Catholics, but a significant figure in terms of what the world actually thinks Christians believe about things. And the Pope, uh, what the Pope says actually continues to have a lot of weight, particular uh, weight in terms of media coverage. There's really no one else out there who speaks on behalf of a church or on behalf of God or God's people uh, who gets quite the media attention that the Pope gets, which is why Uh, This is getting wall-to-wall media attention and why we're going to give it attention today as well. However, let me be quick to say that what what you will hear that Pope Francis has said may or may not be what he actually said. And so the big headline, I'll just read the one from the Wall Street Journal, Pope Francis backs civil unions for gay couples in shift for Vatican Pontiff's remarks in documentary film are likely to exacerbate existing divisions in the church. Um, Accurate headline to a point may or may not actually uh, signal a shift for the Vatican. So did Pope Francis back civil unions for gay couples? Yes, he did. Uh, Does that signal a shift for the Vatican? Well, that would suggest a fundamental change in church doctrine. And I would argue, no, that has not happened. Pontiff's remarks in documentary film likely to exacerbate existing divisions in the church. Oh, you betcha. Absolutely. So what happened was um, in a documentary film about Pope Francis named Francesco, the film is uh, called Francesco, it premiered at the Rome Film Festival on Wednesday And in it, the Pope says, what we have to create is a civil union law. That way, they are legally covered. I stood up for that. Now, the I stood up for that probably refers back to uh, 2014 when the Pope was then the Cardinal Archbishop of Buenos Aires, and he was working with civil authorities and advised uh, the nation of Argentina to make a compromise with uh, sexual progressives in encouraging the state to adopt a middle position legalizing civil unions, which would give homosexual couples the rights in the state without giving them access to the right in the church. So it's a, it's an R-I-G-H-T. Let's give them civil rights without giving them the sacramental right, R-I-T-E. That is ultimately um, the dividing line that Pope Francis is trying to draw here. Now, The challenge is Pope Francis is no longer simply a cardinal archbishop of a particular geography. He is the pope 
of the Roman Catholic Church. And so what he says now has weight around the world. Uh, The Pope's middle position is uh, going to be very unsatisfactory to everyone. People who are on um, the conservative side of this conversation are going to see it as a halfway surrender. And people who are on the progressive side are going to see it as only halfway far enough to what they really want, which is not only full inclusion, but the church's blessing. They they want they're going to want to see a sacramental change in the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, and that's just frankly unlikely to happen. If it does happen, we're talking about a massive global moral shift. And so, what has not happened by the by the Pope's statement is a change in the sacramental standard of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, he has not called for the legalization of same sex marriage. He did not do that. He did not go that far. But he did lay the moral groundwork for doing so. Uh, ultimately, this is going to bring to the fore the issue of the Pope and the papacy and the theology of infallibility. And let me just remind you that as Protestant Christians, the final authority is the Scriptures, the Bible. Um, it doesn't change. It's unchanging. Uh, in fact, part of the Reformation discourse was about the very fact that popes may err. Popes may err. Roman Catholics don't believe that popes can err. Popes don't err. Popes are infallible. And so the conversation is going to come down to, do Roman Catholics actually believe their own theology about who the pope is and what he says, and where will that leave Roman Catholics today? Uh, Let me say the Word of God does not change. There is very clear, I mean, the Bible is clear on this. There is biblical clarity even though the world may prefer moral ambiguity. Um, What is happening right in front of us is an institutional church undermining its own foundations. All right, we will return to the subject, but right now, Ben Johnson is waiting in the wings, and he and I have a number of things to talk about today. So you are listening to Mornings with Carmen, and we will be right back. is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. All right, uh, joining me now, Ben Johnson. He is the rights writer. You can find him at acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. You can find him on Twitter at the rights writer. Ben, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Good to be with you. Great. We've got some uh, terrain to cover today, so let's get uh, let's get rolling. Um, Vice President Biden has committed his hopeful future administration. I guess that's the way I will describe that. Um, he has committed himself and his administration to enacting the Equality Act. Here is the key paragraph. My administration will enact the Equality Act to end legal discrimination against LGBTQ plus people, expand economic opportunities for LGBTQ plus people, reform our treatment of transgender and gender nonconforming individuals in our criminal justice system, ensure access to accurate identification documents, and improve government data collection to better track violence against the transgender community, end quote. Just want you to react to that and uh, remind us what the Equality Act is and, frankly, why, as Christians, we don't like it. Yeah, what uh, Biden has proposed all along is sort of a back to the future policy, because a lot of this was uh, treated as though it were the policy of the United States under Barack Obama. You remember, he had the pen and phone strategy where if a bill didn't pass, he simply acted as though it had and he enforced it. 
Um, the Equality Act was very much uh, the cornerstone of his uh, federal policy when it came to transgender uh, issues uh, from the from the very top of the federal government downward. The Equality Act would amend the 1964 Civil Rights Act to add sexual orientation and gender identity as protected categories alongside race, sex, and religion. So, you know, under 1964 and uh, the existing Civil Rights Act, the uh, the people who passed that said that we should not discriminate against people based on immutable and uh, uh, eternal factors of someone, for example, the way that they were born, uh, the uh, the color of their skin, uh, their, their sex, which was considered to be an immutable factor. If you add gender identity, then you have two issues that are in tension with one another within the bill. Uh, and then also their religion, which is, uh, of course, something that can change, but uh, that is considered to be so defining for a person that it should never be held against them when it comes to serving people or, or hiring them. This would elevate these statuses to the same status uh, unfortunately, a lot of the goals were accomplished with this summer Supreme Court Bostock decision uh, written by Neil Gorsuch, which basically reinterpreted the 1964 Civil Rights Act as though it were intended to cover these categories all along. So uh, a lot of it has been done, but the, the decision itself was sort of vague when it came to religious institutions. In fact, Gorsuch was deliberately vague. He said, you're just going to have to fight your way through the courts and find out what your rights are when these come back up before us. Uh, so that was not very uh, comforting. The Equality Act would, would set this in stone and tell us essentially you have no rights. It would mean affirmative action policies for transgender people. It could mean that your Christian school could be sued by the federal government, taken all the way to federal court, if they refuse to hire a transgender teacher, for example. So it's not clear what the religious uh, rights would be in the original category, in the original wording of every Equality Act that's ever been introduced this sort of Orwellian name, who could be against equality, but there is never in the original wording an exemption for religious institutions. So uh, a Christian school, a Christian seminary uh, could potentially be sued for refusing to hire a, a transgender or a homosexual teacher, regardless of their church's teachings on this. And, you know, uh, uh, Pope, uh, Pope Francis, who we, you were talking about in the previous segment, has made clear that gender identity is uh, something that is very much opposed to the uh, the Catholic understanding, as well as every traditional Christian church, that male and female created he, them, that's an immutable factor. Uh, the Obama administration had two policies that it was implementing that uh, could come back. It could be incredibly dangerous. One of them, uh, we always talked about the uh, the uh, schools uh, being you know, in terms of locker rooms and showers. What was always overlooked is that within the... Uh, Within the guidance that was given by the Obama administration, it also applied to what it called housing, which meant if there was an overnight field trip or if you were in a college dorm room, someone who was transgender would have access to the sort of room that that person identified with. So a, a transgender male, a fully biological male, who had absolutely no changes uh, whatever to the way that he physically appeared or the way that he was attracted to members of the opposite sex, could be uh, the next roommate for your daughter in college. under and, and if the college disclosed the fact that the person was transgender to the incoming student, that Jennifer you know, used to be Benjamin, uh, then they that school could lose its federal funding. Uh, the exact wording, and I quote, is when a student or the student's parent or guardian as appropriate notifies the school administration, the student will assert a gender identity that differs from previous representations or records the school will begin treating the student consistent with the student's gender identity 
And it goes on to say that there is no minimum medical change that is required. The person is immediately treated as a member of the opposite sex and housed with the opposite sex. By the way, where it talks about justice, that means sending males to female prisons. Yeah, it, it, the criminal justice co- parts of this conversation, the housing parts of this conversation, particularly as they relate to colleges and universities, um, including those that understand themselves to be operating out of a Christian worldview. Um, you know, those are, are, are they may be particular points that we want to be equipping Christians to lift up as the Equality Act uh, moves forward. Um, certainly, I mean, certainly now, not almost certainly, but certainly um, if Biden wins the presidency. And so we we want to, you know, elections matter. We have this conversation frequently about why elections matter and uh, choices have consequences. And this would be one of the, in my view, catastrophic um, outcomes of a Biden administration would be the enactment of the Equality Act, which most people have not read, are not read in on, and and would have now no ability to keep from being uh, becoming law, the law of the land. All right. Um, ben Johnson and I have to take a very brief break. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about Betsy DeVos and her vision for what I'll just describe as a redemptive reform of U.S. education. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm talking with Ben Johnson. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute, you can actually find what we're going to talk about right now at blog.acton.org. The headline of the article is Redemption, Not Retreat, Betsy DeVos's Vision for Redeeming U.S. Education. Ben, read us in on this. Betsy DeVos gave an incredible speech at Hillsdale College a little bit earlier uh, this week where she was talking about the difference between a government-centered view of education and a parental-centered view of education. She said that, you know, she's the head of this uh, department, which was founded by Jimmy Carter at the behest of teachers' unions in the 1970s. She said that it primarily focuses on the needs of teachers. It's not necessarily oriented around the needs of students. And if you look at the national report card, which the uh, department puts out, talking about one in three students who are actually reading at the level that they should, one in four can write according to federal guidelines. So... Uh, matter of fact, the percentage of people who can write at an acceptable level actually goes down the longer they spend in federal schools. So she's she's saying that parents have the primary right and duty of education. And it, it says a lot about her faith and how well-read she is. The person she cites is a, a somewhat obscure uh, theologian named Abraham Kuyper. He's obscure in this country, but uh, he is so— He's uh, not obscure so, to me, man. Every square inch. I'm not—he's not—I am—I am, I am I might be Kuypernium. Anyway, yes. go ahead. Well, uh, Kuiper came up with the idea of sphere sovereignty and and uh, the idea that the government should not intrude on on spheres that belong uh, that precede the government, like family. And he also had the idea, as you said, that every there's not one square inch uh, in the world that does not belong to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not subject to His lordship. So uh, that's that's our vision, and it's very much uh, her her faith as well. And where she's talking about, uh, particularly when it comes to education, she says that. Parents have the primary responsibility, uh, and that in uh, so many federal bureaucracies, particularly this one, this is a quote from her wonderful speech, which we have the whole text, as you mentioned, at the blog at acton.org. The school building replaces the home, the child becomes a pawn, and the state replaces the family. So she says, instead of retreating and giving up on, uh, on education, what we need to do is choose victory. 
said a lot of people today are calling for a retreat. Uh, in, in our parlance, we would talk about uh, the Benedict option. But uh, she said Kuiper calls for uh, and this isolationist impulse, the grand lie. He said we have a calling in the midst of the life of the world, and we can't neglect the world. We have uh, the school as one of the chief instruments precisely for enriching people. So ultimately, we have arrows that we have to put not just in the quiver, but on the bowstring. We have to renew and redeem education by taking it back and putting parental choice at the heart of it. And she talks about all the things that she has done, but really her heart shows so clearly where she says that it's in the hands of parents to mold the, their children and to assure that education serves the, the parents' objectives, not that of teachers' unions or that of the government. Um, I love Betsy DeVos. I mean, I just just I'll just come right out and say that I uh, I actually wrote uh, a piece about her in 2017 that talks about uh, Abraham Kuyper. And so you are speaking my language. I'm also a huge believer that education is uh, a a significant uh, part of the conversation we must be having about uh, racial equity in this country and opportunity. Um, I think that I think there is a real opportunity here for people who come from a conservative um, background and, and, and a Christian worldview to actually engage in, uh, in something that's going on in the country where we would really be able to press ourselves in on a way that changes the future. Because, you know, obviously kids and the way that they're educated is a, a very, very significant part of not only who they become— but then how they understand themselves as citizens and what responsibilities they understand themselves to have um, on and on and on and on and on. So um, I am, man, you could not have uh, picked a, an issue that would have been more exciting for me just in terms of I'm, I'm so glad she's in the position that she's in. And I like the, I, I like her idea that she hopes she's working herself out of a job um, that if education were redemptively reformed, we actually wouldn't need a national department of it. And may God grant it. Uh, you know, this is this is uh, Ronald Reagan campaigned on abolishing the Department of Education in 1980. He kept a lot of his promises. That was one that uh, we are still waiting for to come back in. And uh, hopefully the next administration will uh, will prioritize parental rights and choice over teachers unions. Yeah. And I think people need to hear us saying we're not I mean, we're not anti-public education. What we are talking about is actually doing public education in a way that uh, equips and empowers parents, um, puts them back in the driver's seat of the education of their own child, um, and frankly takes away some of the of the institutionalized power of teachers' unions. This is not about you know. It, I mean, I loved my public school teachers, so please don't hear us um, ragging on on public schools or public school teachers. That's not what this is about. This is about us saying as Americans, um, is this how children? ought to be educated. Somebody came up with the idea of the way we do it now. And what we're saying is we think there's a better idea of the way that it could be done um, in a way that would be redemptive and empowering, um, actually equipping students to think uh, and then to uh, to grow up to be the kinds of citizens that would advance us culturally and not be people just interested in tearing down, uh, because that that feels like what's being produced, people who just want to tear everything down. And that's that doesn't help anybody. 
Right. And of course, we've talked on this program about the fact that uh, in some states, private schools are not able to meet because of laws that have been passed by at the state level, because uh, uh, government schools could not open and compete with them. They treat uh, public private schools as though they have nothing to offer, uh, as though uh, our, our you know, uh, Christian schools can't uh, can't enter and should not be able to educate their students in some areas. Uh, you know, quite candidly, there was a study that was done not that long ago that showed that schools that are reopening in person versus those that do not reopen, uh, they are not related to the infection level. They're not related to the science. They are entirely related to uh, how popular President Trump is in those areas. So it's it's a political decision in so many of these places. And frankly, whether your child is uh, served in person or not should have nothing to do with political decisions. It should have to do with your risk, your assessment of the risk factors, your assessment of what is in the best interest of your child, whether that should be in person, whether it should be virtual, whether it should be Christian or secular, uh, whether it should be Jewish or, or Islamic or some other background. That should be entirely in your hands because you are the only person who's been entrusted with raising that precious soul that's been entrusted to you by our Lord and God and Savior. All right, Ben, um, someone has texted in, and I just think that you will appreciate this uh, particular note um, from this individual. So good morning to you listening out there. Uh, This person says, I love your show. I listen every morning while loading potato chips into my old Dutch truck. So good morning, Rick. We're glad you're with us. Uh, Ben Johnson, uh, we're going to be watching for an article that you are working on um, on a student loan scam. I'll be watching for that at Acton. A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Ben, as always, thank you so much for joining us on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. God bless you. Likewise. All right, Rick, we're going to be right back. All right. So uh, in in addition to um, letting us know that he's out there listening, Rick is also uh, encouraging me to, you know, check my definition of papal infallibility. And so... Uh, first of all, thank you. I love listeners who text in and say, hey, not not sure you got that quite right. So the doctrine of papal infallibility means that the Pope cannot err or teach error when he speaks. Here's the nuance. When he speaks on matters of faith and morals, ex cathedra, or, quote, from the chair, end quote, of the apostle St. Peter. So in his role as a supreme teacher of the church. Um, here's the challenge. Uh When he was being interviewed on air for a documentary about his role as Pope, was he or was he not, quote unquote, in the chair, speaking ex cathedra, like uh, as Pope? That's going to be the question. And it's a nuance that the media is uh, not going to parse out. Let me just go ahead and say. And that uh, LGBTQ advocates, those who um, are gender nonconforming and advocate gender nonconformity, are absolutely going to ignore The Pope is the Pope in the common understanding of people around the world. And so um, it it is going to be something that if Roman Catholics want the rest of the world to understand, and if Roman Catholics actually understand it, they they should be getting out there right now um, with all of that. All right, there you go. That's my thank you. Thank you, Rick. Um, Really, really, really appreciate that. Okay, next up, I've got Jim Morgan. Um, Jim is somebody who I actually know well. Um, and uh, he is the head of an organization called Meet the Need. I love Meet the Need. It is a, they're doing really cool stuff, leveraging technology to help ministries. Um, Jim posted a blog uh, on, on Meet the Need that I read on LinkedIn, and I thought, you know what? I want to bring Jim on to talk about that because I think this is a conversation 
that we all need to be having. You hear me talk about the changing meaning of words, the way people manipulate the meaning of words. That's what Jim is addressing in uh, in his blog post, and he's joining me next uh, to talk about it. And you can actually find it at meettheneed.org. We'll be right back. The teen and preteen years are difficult, to say the least. And it's no wonder that the challenging and painful years for your kids can also be challenging and painful for you. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. The vast majority of kids that live at Heartlight, a residential counseling center for struggling teens, started making poor decisions long before they needed to get professional help. So, when you see your kids going down a path that isn't good for them, perhaps a path that you once traveled too, don't be afraid to tell them about your own mistakes. When you admit your weakness, you're actually helping your teen understand that he or she can turn out okay too. And your honesty could just be the thing that keeps them from mimicking your mistakes. Mark Gregson is devoted to helping parents of struggling teens. For more helpful parenting resources, go to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Jim Morgan, president of Meet the Need. You can actually find the blog we're talking about today at meettheneed.org. Jim, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Hi, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. So uh, how are things in Tampa Bay? Doing well down here. It's uh, it's a little crazy as it is in the rest of the, the known world. but uh, Hey, but don't you have a team that's currently playing in the World Series? Like, isn't that, is that not like leading the news where you live? Well, you know, we also won the Stanley Cup down here. <laughs> the Stanley and you Cup. have a fancy and you have a fancy new quarterback. We do, and Gronk as well came with him. So we're, uh, we're, we're loaded down here. We're uh we're title town all of a sudden. Title town. All right. So um <laughs> why don't we uh, I know you, I know Meet the Need. Why don't you introduce yourself and meet the need to our listening audience? Sure, yes. Uh, so basically one of those guys that uh, was a disillusioned, probably overachiever. I tried as hard as I could when I was a little younger in my 20s to uh, to probably compensate for a pretty rough childhood and just did all the things you're supposed to do, the world says you're supposed to do to get ahead. And uh, you know, went to Wall Street investment banking and uh, then went to Capitol Hill to regulate Wall Street, uh, then business school at the, I guess, the nation's top business school at the time. Um, and then bunch of years in management consulting and realized at the end of that road that there wasn't a lot there. <laughs> kind of one of those Ecclesiastes uh, you know, experiences where it was kind of all vanity. And I've been a Christian, but really hadn't been practicing in my 20s and uh, realized that it was time to turn my life around and, and turn it over to him. And I started a church again and, and realized that there's a lot more um, on that path than there was in the path that I was running down. And so um, launched Meet the Need as a part of that. And the way I understand it, you're basically leveraging everything that the tech world knows how to do that the rest of us don't know how to do, but you're leveraging it really for the advancement of the kingdom. Uh, does that does that about uh, describe what Meet the Need is doing? Yeah, that's well done, Carmen. We, you know, Meet the Need is basically kind of like you said, it's, uh, it's bringing modern tools from the business world, which I learned from all my consulting experience and all that, 
bringing it over to the church and charity world, realizing that the body of Christ was pretty fragmented. This is back in like 2000 ish, 2001 kind of time frame, and realized that we, you know, the church was the food bank, it was the homeless shelter, started the schools, started the hospitals, you know, for the better part of 2000 years. And suddenly churches were doing church and, and ministries were doing, you know, ministry work and, and churches were more dabbling uh, in compassion. And, and Jesus, you know, almost always led with compassion, healing and feeding before he said who he was. And that that disconnect, you know, is what Meet the Need was trying to bridge. So we spent about, you know, eight, 18 years, 19 years and a, a few million dollars trying to figure out how do you bridge those communication gaps um, to reconnect the body of Christ. So I want to I want to encourage people to check that out at meettheneed.org. So I uh, follow you on LinkedIn where you recently posted a blog, Society's Claim on the Moral High Ground. It caught my attention. Um, so I'd just like to walk through it. And again, if you're listening right now and you want to read it in its entirety, the blog is posted at meettheneed.org. So, Jim, um, let's start with who is society and what is the moral high ground? What 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 does that mean? Well, society in this, in this context was referring to culture and the kind of prevailing worldview in our nation that's promoted by media, music, movies, magazines, um, you know, don't forget educators and, of course, politicians at a time like this. And, and so the moral high ground is what I believe culture now claims. And it's kind of a euphemism for a perception of moral superiority, not necessarily actual moral superiority, but, you know, almost a self-righteousness, possibly even to justify immorality, as we'll probably talk about later on. Um, and and so you make the case that um, that that society, as we're going to describe it here, the prevailing worldview of the culture um, is is claiming to hold the moral high ground, but the but the ground that they're claiming to hold is actually not there. So make the case. So in, in all fairness, I mean, there's tremendous virtue in equality, justice, tolerance, human rights, you know, for all humanity. Those are the kinds of, of virtues that they would espouse. And and, and but claiming enlightenment or, or being woke is the term, you know, we hear sometimes. It can be a defense mechanism against any imposition of standards for morality. If you claim the moral high ground, if you say that we are more enlightened, we we really get it, and no one else in history gets it, then you know, then you can say that no one can can poke at my identity bubble. I can determine my own uh, virtues and values. I can redefine terms for what I believe that they mean. And these are often Judeo-Christian terms and concepts, and they fundamentally are, that they've kind of claimed ownership of. But if you if you do claim that moral high ground and ownership of those terms and redefine them, then suddenly no one else is really allowed to, to poke or to prod or to uh, make any accusations of, of anything uh, that may be out of place or out of line. And what and how they're conducting their lives. So, Jim, I want to um, I want to take a very brief break, and when we come back, I want to actually walk through some of the words um, where there are people in the culture using words that Christians would hear one way and have an understanding of, but what is meant 
um, in the culture today in the use of that word is very, very different. So we're going to talk about uh, the power of words, the redefinition, uh, even the trivializing of words that have been a part of our Christian conversation for a long time, but they are not understood in the culture the same way today. So more with Jim Morgan from Meet the Need when we come back. Continuing my conversation with Jim Morgan from Meet the Need, you can find what we're talking about today at meettheneed.org. So, Jim, one of the things that you do in this um, in this post is actually walk through a number of these words. So, help help us understand how um, words are being uh, completely redefined. And mm. we talk we talk about this on the show fairly frequently, like. Uh, we make assumptions in a conversation that when I use a word, the other person understands. We have a shared understanding of the meaning of that word. If we don't have a shared understanding of the meaning of that word, we will have a failure to communicate. We will be talking past one another, over one another. I will make assumptions when I walk away from the conversation that I've been heard and understood. The other person will do the same, but the but the substance of the conversation is not the same when uh, each of us would be interviewed about, you know, like what was the outcome. Um, and so talk with us about some of these specific words and how they um, they have been redefined and are being redefined today in the culture. Yeah, there is one fundamental requirement for claiming the moral high ground, and that, that is to, to redefine or to take ownership, almost to hijack terms that, that Christians once owned. Because uh, then the Christian who then tries to speak to that individual who really doesn't want to hear the gospel, doesn't want to change their lifestyle, they suddenly won't understand Nothing will make sense. Nothing that the Christian says using these terms like love and, and tolerance and, um, you know, truth or sin or freedom. These things, sudden justice even, they won't make any sense anymore because you're using a term that they've now redefined. And you're, like you said, speaking a foreign language is speaking right past them. And so, you know, we go back to the Greek and the Hebrew to find out the real meanings because English can't capture the precise you know, meanings of, of words. Our, our modern English doesn't capture that. So we go back and, um, but in this case, you know, we're not giving out speaking the intended message because they're not, they're hearing the, the English and not the actual Greek or the Hebrew that the word's supposed to mean in the, in scripture. So, I mean, for example, you know, the word truth has kind of become, you know, from God's word to my personal opinion, I define my own truth. You know, law is, is, based on the assumption that not we're not guests in God's house. You know, we're owners who make the rules. If you're guests in somebody's house, then it's their rules that you're subject to. And this is God's house. But if we see ourselves now, society does, culture does as owners. So we make up our own rules. And, you know, sin is a word that doesn't even register anymore. It's more these days, not our offense, but being offended. That's that's the sin is, is I'm, I'm offended if I feel if I'm made to, made to feel offended or awkward by somebody or uncomfortable by somebody else. That's the sin is what they committed against me. You know, likewise, freedom is not, you know, the freedom from punishment through Christ for my sin. It's the freedom to sin. It's like I can do what I want to without uh, you know, any, any repercussions uh, within reason, obviously. Um you know, justice isn't what Christ 
you know, uh, didn't deserve. That's he didn't deserve what he got. It's to what I'm owed. Uh, it's yeah, just, this a, and, yeah, and so long, I want to. Yeah, there is a long list, and I would I would love for people to see the entire list and actually spend some time um, contemplating whether or not we actually understand what the culture uh, is saying when it uses, let's say, the term tolerance. There's a classical definition of tolerance um, that is based on the equality of every person, but the disequality of ideas today um, you are considered intolerant if you do not agree with someone's idea and they then in turn erase you or cancel you as a person. Well, that is a an absolute perversion of the, the classical definition of tolerance. And so um, as you look through this list of words, um, you're listening right now and you're going to go to meettheneed.org. You're going to look at this list of words. It's long. I want you to take some time to ponder um, how you understand Compassion from a biblical definition, um, how you understand Jesus having shown compassion uh, and therefore our model for how to show compassion to others. And then what does the world now mean when it uses that term? And how has God really been um, erased from the conversation? Uh, Choose any word on the list and just ask yourself, how would I understand that term if I were looking at it from a biblical worldview versus if I were looking at it through the lens of culture today? It's going to help you see the world better by understanding what the world means in the use of words that we think of as Christians to mean one thing and people in the culture think of to mean another thing. Let's talk about culture change um, and the implications, Jim. Because I think that that's you know, this literally where the, the rubber meets the road. What are the implications of revising what we might call the common lexicon? Why does it matter? Well, when you talk about, you know, tolerance, you know, being a term where, um, you know, it's not, an op- it's not an open mind as it's supposed to mean, <laughs> as you're referencing, it's, it's more of a closed mouth. And, and accountability is supposed to be, you know, answering to God versus true to myself. So if you can flip that around and if, if, you know, just closing, everyone closing their mouth and not speaking out about what I've done wrong and, and me being true to myself are the ultimate goals of tolerance and accountability, it, it kind of means there is no accountability except to yourself. And it means that things like, well, I, I own my own body. So I can do what I want to with it. And no one can tell me otherwise or, or say that I should do something else because that would be shaming me. And, and that's hateful and hurtful. And so that's what Christians often gets labeled, get labeled with. We have to be very careful not to deserve that label of being hateful. But that's one thing they can claim. If you claim you know, victimhood for, for just about anything that makes you feel uncomfortable, then you have extraordinary power. To, to label and vilify you know, the offender, even publicly, like you said, even cancel them. And if you conflate um, you know, servanthood and sacrifice with either weakness or, or some or oppression or control, then you can justify not doing anything for anybody. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a, a long, long list of implications you know, for all for these, these terms which, and for these redefinitions of these terms. And by the, and by the way, just for the blog to find that post, uh, you want to go, you do want to go to meetthenee.org, but then do forward slash blog is the blog site. Okay, um, Jim, um, I, I just, first of all, love talking with you. And I just, 
I love how directly you address the issue. You're not trying to dance around um, uh, something. You're just saying, look, this is this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm experiencing. Um, and this is what it means for us. It's really very, very helpful. And I do appreciate that, um, you know, you are not just satisfied to point out error. You are interested in us actively cultivating the culture of which we are a part. Um, and so maybe as our walk-off, talk a little bit about the Apostle Paul. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that, you know, he's, he's in um, Athens, he's talking about the the unknown God, and he begins to speak in the context of culture to to bring people back to um, you know to that the realities uh, of of truth and and accountability and toler- true tolerance things like that. So, but he does he does that in the context of, of culture. And my concern is that uh, church, which is you know the light and beacon on the hill, that. That, uh, that Jesus is, is the bride of Christ is supposed to, to redirect culture back to toward the Lord is has redefined some terms too to kind of fit the culture context and and so yes we're supposed to like Paul did you know fit the cultural context to an extent but not to to the extent that we actually redefine our own terms to make Christianity more palatable to those yeah. who have shifted their worldview. Exactly. So if you want to read the whole thing, um, the blog is posted at meettheneed.org backslash blog. Uh, And Jim Morgan is the author. He's also the president of Meet the Need. Jim, love what you're doing. I really, really appreciate the way that you're thinking and sharing your thoughts with us. So appreciate you joining us today on Mornings with Carmen. My pleasure, Carmen. God bless you. Thank you. We'll be right back. All right. So earlier we heard from a truck driver named Rick. uh, And then I heard from Jeff, who's also a truck driver, um, who also loves the show and who wants to say, hey, Rick, hello. I was your neighbor in Crystal. So I just really feel like we're dysfunctioning today as a connecting point for the truck driving crowd, which, by the way, I deeply appreciate. I'm that person in that little four-door sedan who is in the fast lane, but who sees that you want to get over in that interminably slow, slow lane, and you have your blinker on, and you're a giant truck, and nobody will let you in. I am the person who slows down and flashes my lights to create the space for you to come over. That is me. So there you go. Jeff, Rick, everybody else that's out there driving a truck today, I am for you. I love and appreciate what you do each and every day. I recognize the sacrifice. My Uncle Jim drove a flatbed uh, delivery truck in Colorado uh, delivering building supplies for like 40 years. So I um, I love you. I get it. Appreciate what you're doing out there today. Thank you for those of you that are on the long haul uh, with us. Uh, so we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.